was silence. And the sky was, was bright blue. The granite was golden yellow. And I could just see a, a red smear of blood in my glasses. Welcome to Factor Two from UK Climbing. This is episode three, Alone, Off the Wall. This is the second part of our story with Duncan Critchley. If you've not listened to part one, nine and a half hours, you can do so on the site. This story stands up on its own though. So you've just set the speed record on the nose. You've had what must be one of the best days climbing of your life. Where do you go from here? As we saw with Jerry and Calf in the first episode, the confidence of youth can buy you some intense experiences. It can also drive you a little further. What do you do after you do the nose and day? Well, what about doing the nose and half dome in a day? That would be cool, wouldn't it? Um, wild plans about, you know, paraponting off the top of half dome and, uh, and things like that. Just to recap, the main voice you'll hear is Duncan Critchley. The other two voices are Charles Cole, the founder of 510, and big wall legend John Middendorf. Just in what he did, uh, he, he really changed the the story of Yosemite, Yosemite climbers for the better. He set a standard during that descent that everyone I know tried to follow. And I sure wish people knew more about that today. And we all said that eventually. Duncan Critchley set the standard. And he was, we all tried to live up to that standard after that. So after the nose, I felt great. I felt invulnerable. I felt incredibly uh, confident in my, in my kind of uh, skills as a Yosemite climber. One day I went off and, uh, and served the, um, the Steak Salafé on the, um, on the Sentinel, which is a 1,200-foot cliff that you can see from, uh, from Camp 4. And the Steak Salafé is a, is a classic 5.9 plus, I think it might have been given at that time. I have to say, is is I mean, I look back on it now. It, it is one of the most ridiculously stupid things I've ever done, but it felt completely comfortable at the time. It it just I think I was still in that sort of post nose, still had that post nose buzz. It's a it's series of of wide cracks and and chimneys, and uh, in the nineteen sixties. It was a kind of a test piece that people started where speed climbing really kind of started in Yosemite and Royal Robins overtly tried to climb the Steak Salafé as fast as he possibly could. I just just flew up the thing and still that's a sense of indestructibility. You know, it, it helps to be uh, 24, doesn't it? The Steak Salafé is a route in, in two parts. It's the first buttress of about uh, 700 feet, just sort of flew past. Then there's a stop. There's a natural pause, and you either have to aid a short section, or you can down climb down this sort of mossy, damp gully, which gets you into a, into a nice 510 hand crack. And obviously, it was the way I had to go um, free soloing. 
I'd been in this bubble of flow, of movement, of just being aware of the, the, the small area of rock around me and, and being completely oblivious of, of where I was, which is what you need to do when you're, when you're free soloing. All of a sudden, uh, I was out of the bubble, realised I was, I was you know, two-thirds of the way up a very large cliff in Yosemite. And that was kind of, uh, I thought, uh-oh. But then a couple of jams, back in the bubble again. I mean, where Duncan amazed a lot of people was when he self-rescued off of Sunkist. You know, nobody does Sunkist. It's a brute, and it's one of these brutes. I don't even know if it ever had a second of that. Sunkist has been described as following some of the most beautiful and steep sections on the southwest face of El Capitan. It's 31 pitches, A358, 900 metres. Duncan set out to attempt a solo of the route, this time using a rope. What I really wanted to do was, was, uh, was a climb called Sunkist, which had had two ascents at that point. Some friends of mine had, had climbed it and had raved about what a fantastic route it was. You know, it was one of those, one of those El Cap routes with the real fly-on-the-wall positions, being up there on the proverbial sea of granite, smooth rock and just a hairline crack up ahead of you. And they'd said it was a, a great route to do. So we were watching him crawl up every day. And because, you know, on wall climbing, you're going slow. And he'd gotten up uh, over the, the headwall uh, where the winds really start blowing. So I headed off up this thing. First day went uh, really smoothly. I was still in that post-nose bubble, climbing really quickly and efficiently. I managed to do seven, seven pitches of the route on the first day, which, which was relatively efficient. It, again, it was, it was just fantastic experience being up on, on El Cap on my own. I had to uh, had to haul the bag using a kind of counterbalance hauling system, so that the haul bag was on one side of the pulley, and I had my uh, had my Jumars attached to the rope on the other side of the pulley. And I was basically trying to kind of run down El Cap and counterbalancing the uh, the haul bag, so they would lift the haul bag up, I would go down, and then I would Jumar back up the rope, and then I would kind of run run back down our cap a bit further and this would pull the pull the whole bag up. And when you're rope soloing, you've you've got a relatively light haul bag compared to going as a sort of a, a, a two-man team. And I slightly underestimated this. So uh, on the final final belay of, of Sunkiss for that day, you end up just above the the heart roofs so on the left hand side of of El Capitan has a feature called the heart which is um, as its name suggests shaped in a kind of traditional heart and the top part of the heart are these these large roofs which come 50 or 60 feet out from the from the rock so when I was doing my counterbalance hauling I ended up dangling over the somewhere over the lip of this roof, suspended by a single thin haul line, slowly rotating round. 
as the sun was the sun was going down and casting shadows were starting to creep up El Capitan. It was an absolutely fantastic, absolutely wild position to be to be up there on your own. I pretty much had the cliff to myself. I just felt so happy up there. So so felt like that this was the place for me. I was working on the rescue team and basically we pulled people off El Cap sometimes or, or some of the cliffs in Yosemite because they had gotten cold, you know, or because of some minor thing. I mean, of course, there were major uh, reasons for people getting rescued as well. It was, you know, a very difficult route. We uh, noticed his progress had suddenly stopped. And for a full day, we just watched. and like, what's going on? It's just a whole day. So, and then he started coming down. It's a tragedy, honest thing, because, because no one saw him fall. Everybody saw him coming down because we were watching this, uh, this, this incredibly uh, difficult descent uh, you know, over the head wall and back down. Uh, but yeah, we, nobody saw him fall, so we really didn't know what was going on at the time. Second day on, on, uh, on Sunkists, fairly early on, you have to climb a chimney off width feature. This is the one sort of nasty pitch on the route I've been kind of warned about, but, uh, you know, I I just soloed the stake salafé. Wide cracks and chimneys didn't hold any fears for me. When you're rope soloing, you have one end of the rope tied to the belay. Obviously, you don't, you don't have a belay there. You have to have one end of the rope is tied to the belay, and then you attach yourself to midway up the rope in some way so that you've got say you're 30 feet above the belay you've got about 35 feet of rope between you and the belay and you clip the rope into the runners in the usual way and i was using a clove hitch through a screwgate carabiner uh, on my harness to self belay with and the way it works is you just feed through a little bit of slack through the clove hitch. Uh, you climb five feet, then you feed through another five feet of slack. You climb five feet and so on. And when you're aid climbing, this works really well because you're, you're sat on gear the whole time. You still clip the rope into your, into your gear as if you were sort of leading the pitch in the usual way. You're pretty much as safe as you would be if you had a bee layer. It's kind of a lot more awkward uh, free climb, though, because you have to try and feed the rope out as you're free climbing up. So obviously on a, on a kind of chimney off-width pitch, this is a bit more of a challenge, feeding the rope through the clove hitch. So I sort of set, up, set off up the, uh, up the pitch, and uh, being a kind of wide crack chimney, it had no gear, no protection. So I was climbing basically straight off the belay and having to feed out a lot of slack in order to be able to get to a spot where I knew I could, you know, get a piece in and rest on that. Pitch is only about 60 or 70 feet long and the last 10 feet or so of it is uh, fist jam size. So I knew I could get a friend number four at that point. But basically, uh, until then... I wasn't going to get any gear, but it was getting tricky and I was struggling to feed the rope through the clove hitch and then climb. I kind of spied out the next section of the route. I figured, okay, I've got about 15 feet 
to get to a point where I can get the the number four friend in, then I can I can rest on that and sort the ropes out there. So I guess I had, I don't know, 50, 60 foot of slack out at this point. So I pulled through a load of rope and went for it. Got up to the number four friend, just where the sort of first fist jam was. Clipped myself in and it held and then it didn't hold. It's one of those one of those times where I, I could see myself falling down. So it was almost like I was an observer from outside of myself. And I could see myself just gently kissing the granite like a, like a stone skimming off a pond and then crash, hit the end of the rope after an appreciable period of time, you know, several seconds of, uh, of flight. All was silence. And the sky was, was bright blue. The granite was golden yellow. And I could just see a, a red smear of blood in my glasses. My memories of it all are, 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 are so very, very visual. So I rigged up my Jumars and, uh, and Jumar back up to the um, belay and, uh, and got myself into the hammock before kind of the adrenaline started to sort of wear off and the, uh, and the shock sort of wore off and everything started to hurt. My amazing year of, of gradually pushing the boat out further and further and doing more and more stupid, overconfident things had finished at that point. I'd lost a friend on, uh, on shivling a few years previously who'd suffered from sort of concussion and I had in my mind that that um, that sort of episode. I knew I knew it was over as far as going up was concerned, and I was going to have to uh, I was going to have to get down. I was also aware that I might have I might well I had banged my head, and this might be a significant issue. So I I, I wanted to kind of wait and uh, see what was going to happen. I spent the rest of the afternoon and the uh, and the night there um, hanging in my hammock. I knew I'd broken some ribs because I could feel, you know, I could feel the bones, you know, you can feel the crepitus, the, the crunching feeling of the, of the bones kind of sort of rubbing against each other. And that's extremely painful, particularly when you're, a, you know, you're in a nylon hammock. And uh, I knew I'd done something to my, to my ankle and I... Wasn't sure what I'd done to my to my wrists. I thought I it was either a bad sprain or a break. I wasn't quite. I wasn't sort of quite sure. It, it, you know, it, it was it was very very painful. But the um, the ribs were probably the kind of the most the most painful thing. So I thought, well, I'll I'll kind of give it a try the following morning. Yeah, of course. Yeah, we we knew something was up. You know, because he was soloing Sunkist. It was the first solo ascent of Sunkist word got around that he was retreating we were like why would he be retreating and um, it's quite steep up there too so i don't think it's a very easy descent especially from from where he had fallen um once he got down to the lower part where it hits the south eh, that that was that's not so bad there's a lot of fixed anchors and places to repel but i think the upper part of that route was actually quite a technical challenge to to descend from and the problem with sun kists is previous pitch Kind of traverses out over the top of the uh, of the of the heart roofs, 
if you abseil straight back down, then you're going to abseil straight back over the roof. You know, they're, they're, this is something that's overhanging about 45 degrees for 50 or 60 feet. You're not going to better get back down there. So I figured out I was going to have to do a kind of a, a tension traverse come abseil over into a route called Magic Mushroom. So I thought, well, if I can get into Magic Mushroom, that avoids the heart roofs and, and it's pretty much a straight abseil to the deck from there. So I kind of strapped myself up. So I gave myself a splint for, uh, for my wrists with lots of, um, lots of hand tape and some climbing gear to kind of keep, keep it kind of reasonably, uh, reasonably stable. And, uh, and strapped a load of tape around my shoe to, uh, to support my ankle and did this kind of one-handed abseil come sort of tension traverse and managed to get sort of 40 or 50 feet sideways into Magic Mushroom, fixed the rope to the belay there, tumard back up again, sort of one-handed and one-footed. But I knew, I knew at that point, I, I, you know, I was probably going to get down. I guess it's... I don't know, 17, 18, 1900 feet up El Cap at that point. Drank the water, left the food behind, chucked the whole bag off and uh, abseil back down and got back down to um, the, uh, the bottom of El Cap in, um, in a couple of hours. The mountain rescue people um, were kind of waiting for me at the bottom because they'd, uh, a tourist had reported a falling body which was the haul bag, of course. Back then, of course, everybody threw things off El Cap. Like throwing haul bags off the top was was considered the normal way to descend. It wasn't until about five years later that that became like a forbidden practice. And we there was people aware that he was up there, and they were aware that he was coming down, and we were all wondering why he was coming down. And when he did make it down on his own with a broken wrist, broken ribs, and he did, definitely looked pretty pretty shattered. Uh, it was quite impressive to see someone have managed a self-rescue like that so effectively and efficiently. They whisked me off to the uh, Yosemite Medical Center, where, of course, the doctor wouldn't go near me until I'd had a shower. I'm not sure when I'd last had a last had one, but uh, they weren't going to they weren't going to examine me until I'd sort of uh, smartened up and, uh, and 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 washed some of the uh, the smell and grime uh, out of me, which I can uh, I can totally understand. They plastered me plastered me up, and uh, so I, I arrived back in uh, camp four late that afternoon with a plaster cast on my on my wrist, my kind of trophy and uh, ankle strapped up. Everybody had respect. He got much more respect than just doing what a solo of Sunkiss would ever have given him. He was, it's just like the Shackleton. Yeah, Shackleton gone and got across the thing, and yeah, okay, he's building a hero. But the fact that Shackleton had this self-rescue adventure, oh my God, you know, he's a hero forever. And in our minds, in our little tiny world, the same was uh, it could be said of Duncan. So you'll be getting the impression that Charles is a pretty big fan of Duncan at this point. And their developing friendship gives us one final twist in this story. I was hanging hanging out in in, in Yosemite in in uh, in early July, not quite knowing what to do. You know, with a with an injury, couldn't climb. It was getting hot, so I was I was just 
really, I think, mentally recovering as much as anything else from, from what had happened and spending time with, with um, people like Steve Graceman and uh, Charles Cole. Charles and Steve were climbing new routes in El Cap at the time, and they were, they were a great pair. Charles was, he just finished uh, an MBA at the time. I had no idea what an MBA was. I didn't even know they existed. He wore Adidas T-shirts, white Nike trainers, immaculate looking. That's my, that's my recollection of him. Relative to the typical Yosemite dirtbag of the time, let's say, immaculate looking. Steve was the typical Yosemite dirtbag. There's, there's uh, you know, the clothes practically falling off his, uh, his, his shoulders. But the two of them made a, made a great team and put up some really good, really hard aid routes and mixed aid and free routes. There's, there's a route of theirs called Jolly Roger, which goes up past Sunkist. Still gets very, very few ascents today. Hard aid climbing and hard free climbing on it. Which, which, uh, which keeps the riffraff off. Charles, I, I have found out so later, was fairly impressed with the manner in which I managed to extricate myself from uh, two-thirds of the way up El Cap. He told me sometime later that he's, he uses that story as, uh, as part of the, sort of the, um, the staff training in, uh, in 510 as a sort of illustration of self-reliance and sort of looking after yourself. I'm not sure if it's that really. I think um, it just seemed like the kind of the, the logical thing to do at the time. And we were sat at the foot of um, foot of El Cap, uh, shooting the breeze in uh, in mid-August, and he had an idea. One of the things that Charles was was really good at, as well as the, the the hard aid climbing, was he was a really strong slab climber. He'd he'd done lots of climbing in in um, Joshua Tree, put up hard face routes there, hard slab climbing routes there, and Fieres sticky soled shoes had just come onto the market in the states and Britain, and had made a big impact and as a friend of mine put it at the time all of a sudden gritstone 6b just wasn't that hard anymore it was one of the biggest transformations in in climbing gear technology and charles was was obviously aware of this but the 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 fire rubber the the, the new spanish sticky rubber didn't seem to work on the really polished Yosemite granites in quite as quite as well as it seemed to on on on, on other rock types. And Charles is really interested in in repeating a very very hard slab route called Hall of Mirrors on Yosemite on um, on Glacier Point Apron, which is a five thirteen slab climb. Can you imagine such a thing? Um, that's uh, that's seven C plus slabs for for who uh, who like Euro grades. Um, that was that was what he was really he was really looking looking to do. So he'd gone into his university library and he was looking up rubber chemistry because he he really wanted to. He knew that 
sticky rubber had made this incremental improvement uh, in climbing standards, but he thought he could do even better because he wanted to create a rubber uh, that was going to enable him to climb Hall of Mirrors. The other idea that that he had at the time was for a training shoe with a climbing rubber type sole on it, what we would now call an approach shoe. He was interested in, in what I thought of this as a, as a sort of European climber. He wanted to call them uh, five tennies. A tenny is an is a Americanism for a tennis shoe or training shoe. He wanted to know whether he thought, whether I thought the idea of an approach shoe was, uh, was a good one. He was, he was kind of interested in potentially um, me going into business with him, perhaps sort of representing him in, in Europe. As I say, he'd been, he'd been sort of somewhat taken by my ability to sort of extricate myself uh, and seemed to think that this would translate into business terms. So he said, would you be interested in this idea and would you be interested in becoming the distributor in, in, in Britain? At the time, I, I think uh, that standard is not held to anymore enough. When people can self-rescue, they just they often don't. But, and he never really explained his motivation. Um, but it didn't matter. We kind of understood it, I think, and uh, applauded it. So, yeah, running 510, people, they all wanted, you know, can you solve this for me? You know, if you're running a company, you're the last word. You're hoping that most problems don't come to you because it means other people can't solve them. But you get someone like Duncan, he solves the problems. Hey, you know, that maybe he created, maybe someone else, whatever it was. He took care of himself. He wasn't embarrassed by it. He did it. And he, he should have been very proud of it. I hope he is. And, and uh, continues to be. Uh, so I was thinking, okay, maybe we can, you know, get these guys to, you know, talk about the shoes and their countries, and you know, be. I guess I didn't even know the terminology then, but it would be our first sales rep in these other countries. So, yeah, absolutely. You meet a guy like that, you say, wow, he can do anything. Yeah, would you sell my shoes, please? Anyway, I told him I thought that that approach shoes were a lousy idea, and that no one would be interested in them. That shows you what my business skills are like. Fortunately for all concerns, uh, he didn't ask me to go into partnership with him and, and he chose someone far more, uh, far more appropriate. And uh, some people might see that as being a kind of missed opportunity, but I think quite honestly, it would have been painful for all concerns. <laughs> well, in a sense, he was right. Five pennies didn't catch on the way I had hoped they would, but the uh, the climbing shoes that followed uh, did. I love the contrasting judgments in these two episodes. In the first part, we saw Duncan make a very quick judgment on Roman, and he was right on the money. He had one of the best days climbing of his life, but it was tinged with the regret that he never climbed with Roman again. Then in part two, we see him make some mistakes, but the way he deals with them turns him into a hero to the climbers in the valley, resulting in this incredible offer from Charles. 510 was sold to Adidas for $25 million in 2011. I asked Duncan if he thought good judgment was an important part of being a good climber. Good judgment, yes. Good judgment and knowing when things are not for you. I think Sunkist said 
this far and no further. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it was uh, it was great while it lasted. I'd like to say a massive thanks to Charles and John for helping me to tell this story. John's got a new portal edge, the D4, which you can check out on his website. And of course, the biggest thanks to Duncan, not just for sharing his story, but for telling it so well. He probably didn't tell you the story. After he broke his arm, he really couldn't feed himself. So we invited him to dinner in Camp 4. And we put, you know, just massive hot sauce on, mostly to to beat our mouths up. From what we could see, Duncan was a meat and potatoes guy. never had hot food. So we gave these tacos, and the next morning he had blisters on his lips. You've been listening to Factor 2 from UK Climbing. Join us again in January for Episode 4. It's all in the mind.